Today's conversation is brought to you by He Gets Us. How did the world's greatest love story become known as a hate group? That's the question behind He Gets Us, the largest national multimedia campaign to change hearts and minds about Jesus. Reaching over 1 million people daily, He Gets Us now helps connect local churches to the conversation. From discussion guides, Bible reading plans, and even a sermon series, you can now bring He Gets Us and the nationwide conversation to your church. Visit hegetsuspartners.com forward slash NAE to get these free resources. We live in a time, and I think in the foreseeable future, where where we aren't just using technology in a, you know, kind of light switch, it goes on, it goes off, you know, like I connect with you and then I turn it all off. It's no, no, no. We are living in a landscape, in a in an ecology is the word that I use, right? In an environment that is actually completely enmeshed, um, infused with digital communications and informations because of our mobile devices, of our notifications, of all the different streams coming from work and family and friends and church, community, right? And so the result is that we live in what's called a state of permanent connectivity. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE President. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. One area that touches on both thriving communities and navigating complexity is how we interact with social media, digital devices, and technological advances. Felicia Wu Song, a cultural sociologist of media and digital technologies, joins us for a wide-ranging conversation on personhood, connection, and formation in the digital age. Listen in. Felicia, it is so great to connect with you. Um, it's great to to have known you in the pre-social media world and now to reconnect with you uh, in friendship and collaboration this way. It's a real joy. It's a real pleasure to be here with you, Walter. Yeah, and 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 this conversation in particular is something that impacts all of us, uh, and often in ways that we can't quite grasp. So I'm I'm eager to jump into things. Uh, and you come at this issue um, not just with kind of an academic and sociological lens, which of course you bring through your training, but you come at it through a deeply informed faith. So let me begin with that part. Um, Describe a little bit more how your faith influences the questions you ask when it comes to technology, formation, and who we are. Yeah. Um, So what I am most interested um, in my research and scholarship is the way that technology impacts our experience of being human. Um, To put that in more concrete terms, I'm interested in how technology shapes the way um, we experience community, relationships, identity, um, what we think we're doing when we're forming our identity. Um, And so when it comes to how my faith um, gets enmeshed in the way that I think about those things, um, I think it's it's actually quite integral. It's completely... Um, at the center of what animates 
my curiosity um, because um, I'm oriented around the 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 central understanding that that God created us as human beings in a particular way with with particular um, uh, a nature uh, that is. Um, as the church likes to put it, is in the image of God. So I'm curious about, well, what is that, right? Is that our relationality? Um, is that connected to the way that um, Jesus was incarnated um, in, a, in, in flesh, in a corporeal body, right? Like, what does all that mean um, to us and the way that we are to live into our um, human experience? And, and, and so, therefore, what happens when technology is is kind of interfacing with that, right? Mm -hmm. And so the way we live um, into relationship or community or identity in the 21st century, right? In 2023 is going to feel different from what it was like in the 1970s or in the 1940s, right? Mm -hmm. um, even though identity, community, relationship have always been a part of our human experience, what does it feel like for us now? So in your book, uh, Restless Devices, you discuss the reliance on technology um, and specifically its potential to isolate us from this human connection that you're talking about, connection, relationships, image of God. Mm -hmm. um, draw that out a little bit for us. I mean, this intersection, yes, mm -hmm. positive things, perhaps, hopefully, but mm -hmm. also you you. Talk about its potential to actually damage or isolate us. Um, work that out for us. Yeah. Yeah. So I think our digital technologies today are 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 fascinating and challenging to know how to live with precisely because of what you said. It has so much potential to actually bring people together, to help people express themselves authentically, to bring people that are um, maybe geographically, you know, spread in very different places, right? That can't um, and historically haven't been able to talk to each other, right? I mean, it's incredible, right? Um, but at the same time, I think what I'm, what I'm, interested in and and um I'm curious about is the way that um it's that the impact of technology is not just when we are actually using it that is when mm. you and I are talking to each other at this very moment right mm. the impact of technology is much broader it's bigger in the way that today um, again, unlike how it might have been in the 1990s, if any of us might remember that, um, what plugging into the internet was like then, it's very different now, right? And so um, right now, we live in a time, and I, I think in the foreseeable future, where where we aren't just using technology in a, you know, kind of light switch, it goes on, it goes off, you know, like I connect with you and then I turn it all off. It's no, no, no. We are living in a landscape in a in an ecology is the word that I use, right? Mm -hmm. In an environment that is actually completely enmeshed, um, infused with digital communications and informations because of our mobile devices, of our notifications, of all the different streams coming from work and family and friends and church, community, right? And so the result is that we live in what's called a state of permanent connectivity, 
Hmm. And what that means is that even though we might not actually be literally looking at a screen at a given moment, increasingly our consciousness is a part of our consciousness is actually dedicated to thinking about or or waiting on that email or that post or that mm. notification, right? And so that, this gets to your question about relationships, so that whenever I actually am engaged with someone, whether I'm having coffee with them or I'm I'm standing and just talking to them um, or or even online, a part of my spirit and my being is actually kind of preoccupied knowing mm. that something else is happening somewhere else. And very often we tend to think that that something else is actually more important mm. than the person that we're actually talking to. Right. And so that's the, it's that kind of um, chronic state of being, um, uh, preoccupied, right, with with mm. some other thing that's happening online um, that is distracting us, that is, um, research is showing it's it's creating um, a an inability to actually attend to people mm. um, and a lower sense of empathy um, with people when we're actually talking to them. And so just in, again, in that kind of very broad sense in which we are shifting in our everyday texture of of how we go through life because we are permanently connected it is transforming even the times when we are talking to each other um and that's not even to get into and we can get into this the way in which the digital industry is selling us mm. a very particular way of talking to each other and being with each other. And I would argue that way is shaping and distorting those relationships and our identities within those um, communities. Mm. That's very compelling description. One that I think all of us could um, maybe immediately imagine what this is, you know, going through your day mm. and yes, you sent the text off. Yes. You posted something on Instagram. Yes. You, you know, put your phone down, but did you really put your phone down? Because as you're talking about it, it's still in the back of our minds. And that, the way you draw it out, there are two things that um, strike me as, uh, and its implication for human relationships. One is that um, you noted that we are less able to connect with each other because mm -hmm. we're less present with each other. Even mm -hmm. mentally, we're less present. We might even be sitting across from each other. And lovely moment in which we both have our phones down, but our phones are not down mentally. Like they're still, so, okay, I get that. But this part of the empathy, mm -hmm. um, describe that a little bit more for me. It's not just that you're, you're arguing. It's not just that we have something constantly mm -hmm. running in our back of their minds that are draining us a little bit, mm -hmm. but you are saying it's impacting our ability to have empathy. Yeah. Uh, how is that working out? Because that the implications of those two are huge for human relationships. Yeah, yeah. So um, Sherry Turkle writes, um, she's a, a social psychologist who teaches at MIT and has written wonderful, um, very accessible books on the role of technology, particularly in the lives of young people as they are forming 
um, their sense of self and um, forming an understanding of how to be in friendships and relationships with people. She writes about um, these studies that that note this this drop in empathy um, through the decades. And I think what's happening um, in part is the presence factor, as you mentioned, that 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 um, we are increasingly um, not committed um, mm-hmm. in some ways to each other. Um, in our spirits, right? Mm. Because we are um, uh, tending to the the fifty uh, snap streaks that we need to keep up um, on a, on a twenty four seven basis, right? Um, but I think you know, um, a part of the the neurological um, aspect of empathy that I find particularly interesting is the way in which empathy. Um, is comes um how should i put this is cultivated out of a part of our brain that um we actually don't let breathe and live out its capacity mm. um very often because it's the part of our brain that only quote turns on when we are bored when we're not doing anything we're not when we're not filling our minds with stimulation and information or getting something done. Um, It's that part of the brain that um, is um, dedicated to creating self-narrative for reflection, right? It's the part just, and that sounds all very scientific, but we all know this, like you've had a conversation with someone during the day, maybe you had a conflict and um, then you're just driving home, you know, thinking about it or you're in the shower and you're, mm. you're not even thinking about it, right? You're just shower, And then, but then there's this thought that comes to you, right? Mm. It's like, Oh, Oh, maybe this is what they meant. Like I took them to say this in a different way or, or, Oh yeah. Right. And, and it's because our brains, right. When we're showering or when we're driving, right. It's, it's shifting into a different modality. Right. Um, and it's, it's actually neurologically, bound up right and um our capacity to empathize right so when we are constantly on our phones when we're constantly being stimulated by netflix or reading the news right that part of our brain is not activating Hmm. right um and so we aren't actually engaging in the empathy work Hmm. right it's it's not even getting a chance right to to blossom and grow and, and you mentioned the kind of impact neurologically, um, but specifically on developing brains. So mm-hmm. you've already alluded to the, you know, especially on young brains. So um, is there a difference in how this is impacting children um, versus adults? Uh, what are similar ways that technology, mm-hmm. social media, our digital life um, what are some ways that are similar uh, between different generations? But what are some of the ways yeah. that may be specific in our concerns for childhood development? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's still a lot of questions about what is happening to young people's brains as they are growing up in a world of screens, of social media apps, um, and 
in a world in which um, what it means to be a friend, what it means to have relationship with someone might mean being on a group chat or being on Snapchat or be real, right? Like what is that? How is that forming their understanding of what friendship and trust and love looks like? I think all of those are real and open questions in ways that are perhaps different from older generations that did um, have formative years uh, without this degree of technological enmeshment in our friendships and relationships. Um, With that said, um, one of the things I actually feel quite strongly about is that I don't think of technology as a young person's problem. Mm. Um, I think that's a really easy cop-out for Mm. those of us who are older (laughs) um, to say, oh, like this is just something for the youth group people to talk about or, Mm. right? Um, I I don't think that at all. Um, If Again, if you look at the studies, um, you know, the, the Gen X, the baby boomers, right? Like, we're on social media just as much as the teenagers. Wow. We're on different platforms. We do different things, perhaps, right? Um, but the screen time is actually not, you know, we're not getting outpaced um, mm-hmm. by the young people. It, it's different. It, it gets used differently, right? Um, but I think the degree of dependence and also... I would sadly say the degree of, of of lack of reflection is actually quite similar um, across the generations. And, and that's understandable because we live in a society, in a culture that tends to um, fully embrace and celebrate technology. We don't, we aren't particularly skilled at or, or have much experience even in having public discussions, public conversations about um, the potentially negative or troubling aspects of technology. And we we don't have a history of, of uh, economic regulation or government um, oversight over these aspects of our lives in the ways that other countries and cultures do. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's very understandable that we don't have a lot of cultural or societal resources easily accessible. But I think that is starting to change. Mm. Um, And and certainly we have, you know, moments when even now, right, with all the AI fury, right, we have moments when people get very concerned. Um, But I think um, in those times, we we need to um, be very thoughtful about what we are concerned about. Mm. All right, you mentioned AI, and you also mentioned in previous comment earlier on about the impact that business has in promoting certain ways of consuming information, certain ways of reacting, and then the lack of oversight that we have as a a society more generally. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's put some of those pieces together. What what are the questions, what are the concerns that that we should have when we think about the active agents, whether it's business or new technology or scientific mm-hmm. endeavor, mm-hmm. Uh, what are the things that we should be asking uh, when it comes yeah. to those um, agents? Because they're not neutral. They're, they're, they all have something uh, that mm-hmm. they're seeking to do with this technology. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the most um, interesting aspects about the history of the internet is that when it was first invented and when it, the research was initially starting, um, unlike most inventions, most technologies, um, the business sector wasn't a part of the conversation. Um, and so, so many aspects of the internet that we celebrate, um, the, the way in which it's decentralized, the way in which information can be free, quote unquote, right? Um, the ways in which we can network with each other, all of that came out of other sectors, actually. Um, and the business sector was actually rather skeptical about what the potential of the internet was. Um, but once we hit the, um, once once Silicon Valley figured out and venture capitalists figured out how to make money off of the internet, and we're in the 2000s now, right? It shifted what the internet is. Um, and, and so I think one of the key aspects of most of the technologies, the digital technologies that we have coming down the pike or that is already in our lives, um, one of the aspects we really need to pay attention to is the fact that it is deeply enmeshed in a commercial, commodifiable, right, mm. um, endeavor. And that um, because there is big money um, in this um, and that you have brilliant minds, truly brilliant creative minds going into figuring out how to not just um, hook us um, onto a certain platform, right? Drawing on research from casinos, consultants, addiction consultants, right? Um, being fairly unabashed, right? About cultivating those addictions um, so that we will spend more time on particular platforms or apps um, in order to gather data from us Right. I think that's the part that most of us miss. Right. We don't understand because we don't see it. It's kind of under the hood that there's a, we are giving off a lot of data. That's what companies are actually selling um, to advertisers um, and other organizations. That is where the, the connections between the social media apps and artificial intelligence actually, that's where the point of connection is. Because artificial intelligence relies on data, mm. data that is out there that's being um, crunched through remarkable algorithms, right? All the machine learning is based on the data that we are collectively, right, giving off. And so the concern, I think, or the things we need to pay attention to in these active agents is that, you know, we live in a time and in a society where, um, you know, economic ends, um, you know, there's, there isn't much of a mm, counterpoint to mm. it at this, uh, you know, in conversations, right? Mm. The bottom line still tends to appear to be um, something that trumps ethical concerns, that mm. trumps civic concerns. Mm. Um, and so, um, as a society, we, we haven't quite figured out um, how to 
offer um, a critique, mm. right? That that has moral authority, right? That will that that will um, motivate an industry to say, "Hey, maybe we shouldn't just um, promote this technology um, to young people or let all the voices be heard in this way." Um, because we're making a ton of money, even if there are lots of societal societal or individual dangers that are trending, trending mm. fast, right? Mm. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think it's it's um, it's a huge um, a big part of the problem is that as consumers um, who don't understand the technology, it, and it takes so much work. To understand it, right? I mean, these companies aren't making it easy at all, right? It's not like in the old days when we had a car that you could tinker with, right? Or a radio, right? That you can actually lift the the literal hood and tink, right? Mm. Even today's cars, you can't tinker with them. Right? You lift it and you see this digital, right? It, it's digitized. And so you're mm. like, I, I don't, yeah, what am I supposed to do? Mm. Um, and so as consumers, I think it's, it is difficult for us to get information about how the industry works, but I think it needs to, um, that conversation needs to enter our communities. Um, so we just have a better understanding of what our consumption means um, to these industries. So we, we've covered some ground that talks about um, formation of the brain, mm -hmm. impacts on community, human relationships, uh, society as a whole, all of which touches upon aspects of being created in the image of God. But I want to focus um, more specifically on faith. What is the impact of all of this on faith formation? How we even understand our relationship with God uh, and life in the church? Mm, yeah. Um, I like to think about our um, relationship with technology in terms of the habits that we have. Um, the habits, especially the ones that... Um, you know, the real habits are the ones that we don't even realize we're doing. Um, and so um, the work of Jamie Smith has helped me think through this. Um, he talks about how um, many of the habits that we cultivate in our society are function like liturgies. He calls them sec secular liturgies, right? They train us, they train our hearts towards a particular love, particular way of, um, or a particular vision of the good life, right? Of, of who, uh, what, what, we're, what this is all about. And, and the problem is that so many of our secular liturgies, i.e. Uh, many of our digital habits, checking my phone every moment that I have a break, um, when I'm tired, checking my phone, um, when I'm upset, checking my phone, right? All of those habits um, arguably are actually discipling us away from the kingdom of God, um, discipling us away from uh, following after Jesus. Um, and so I think for people of faith, and I'm using the word discipling in a very 
purposeful way. I really do believe that our our digital habits are training us and teaching us certain things about um, how to respond to to hard times, um, things that are uncomfortable, um, but also teaching us um, what it means to be a good friend. Um, uh, that, which could look like, especially increasingly now for young people, you know, having to respond instantaneously after a, a message or a text um, and um, training us in ways that, um, you know, and other people have said this um, in other spaces, training us in ways that um, accept accept a c c e p t accept the 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 degree of noise that the internet provides for us um and actually shames um a life of silence mm. or, or 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 seasons of silence um seasons of solitude right it is it is undesirable to be um alone and quiet. And um, this, I think, is is especially challenging for people of faith um, when we think about um, what kind of life we need to cultivate in order to um, be present to the living God, um, who is very easy to avoid or not notice um, when there's a lot of noise. Um, or when we are constantly um, being driven hither and yon um, by whatever demands um, that e- email inbox is, you know, shouting at us about. What What are then the liturgies that you would offer to disciple us into life in communion with God and communion with others? Um, you, you've mentioned solitude. But once again, let's draw that out as as, as a liturgy, a counter liturgy. What, what, yeah. what are some of those counter liturgies? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so counter liturgy, this term that Jamie Smith used, I, I love that term. I love the way he talks about how it's it's not, you know, um, just getting rid of the bad things, but actually taking on new practices that that fill us up. Um, and I think that's key for us because right now in our culture, especially with young people increasingly, I think there's an awareness, right? There's an awareness that, hey, maybe all this technology isn't a great thing. Um, and it can be easy to even feel shame about our digital habits, right? And be like, yeah, I know I shouldn't be on this app. I know I shouldn't, right? Like, we, mm-hmm. I know I shouldn't, right? Um, and so I think one of the 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 pitfalls we want to avoid is to just create another category of shame for Christians, mm. right? To be like, oh, you're being bad because you're being online too much and so forth. And so I think the counter liturgy um, approach, right? This, this let's take on new practices that, that actually do fill us up is, is very compelling to me, right? Um, because it's saying there are good things that God already has for us that we just need to open ourselves up to, right? And so, um, very practically, I think of um, counter-liturgies in two categories. I think in terms of cultivating sacred times 
and sacred places, right? Um, and so the idea is um, maybe we can cultivate some kind of counter liturgy that protects us or creates freedom, actually, mm. um, from all the demands, all the voices, right, that are constant before us when we look at our screens. And so that can look like um, just, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of starting small. Um, that can look like 15 minutes, 15 minutes in the morning, the first thing you do when you wake up and just committing yourself to 15 minutes, I'm going to wake up and I'm not going to look at my phone or any device. I'm not going to read the news. I'm not going to find out what everyone texted me last night. I'm not going to, right? Just 15 minutes of quiet. Right, to like open the shades, to smell the coffee, mm. to see the face of the person that is in my home, right, living with me, um, that's part of my household, um, to just breathe for 15 minutes, mm. right, before letting it all come in, right, and seeing that as sacred, right, this time when um, God is already present, but that I can be present to God. Right. Mm. Um, and, and we can, we can, you know, depending on where we're at, you know, that might in, involve, you know, maybe we read scripture, maybe we pray, maybe we journal. Right. But it is about setting that boundary. Um, sacred places is about, again, um, thinking about particular, being intentional about particular places um, that we want to kind of draw a line around and say, Hey, in this space, it's going to be free of this um, noise and demands, um, and also a place to learn to be quiet, right, mm -hmm. or to be alone. And so that could look like a bedroom. It could look like a dining table. It could look like a place under a tree, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it 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 can be anywhere that we just set intentionally right as when i go there i'm gonna actually be free of all of these right voices and and demands um and letting and and being disciplined in 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 keeping those boundaries at least for a season to give it a try um it can be hard in the beginning for many of us it can be very challenging um but but seeing what fruit can be born out of mm. that. Um, one of the things I like talking about is um, thinking about these liturgies in terms of experiments. Experiments are instead of kind of commitments or promises to oneself um, because experiments never fail. You know, you can try for 15 minutes and let's say you can't make 15 minutes. You, you only get to five, right? And you just, you have to look at your phone, right? Um, instead of thinking, oh man, what a failure I am. Like, I'm so weak-willed. What's wrong with me, right? Seeing it as an experiment where you actually gather data. Mm. You'd say, oh, okay. I see. I couldn't even last five minutes. Or like for me, I tried this. Um, um, I've tried another practice is monotasking instead of doing multiple things, only doing one thing. So when I'm driving, I just drive, right? And so the first time I tried to just drive instead of listening to a podcast or calling a friend, it was terrible. I felt mm. anxious. I was like breaking out in a cold sweat. Mm. <laughs> I was very nervous. But that was data. That was data for me 
that's then brought me to a place of prayer to say, okay, Lord, like what's going on here? Why can I not even sit for five minutes? Help me to see what I need to see. Right. Um, and so I'm trying out these experiments in these liturgies um, can become a part of the, the conversations and the journeys um, that we undertake in being a disciple of Christ, right? And trying to discern, right? What is it that God is is wanting us to see? Very, very helpful. But both the shift of mentality that you're describing, but also some of the very practical examples you've given in terms of creating sacred time and sacred space um, places. Um, this works for individuals. I can see that. Give us some imagination for what a community, whether it's a mm -hmm. church or a family or a group mm -hmm. of friends or maybe even a workplace, like mm -hmm. what what can we do in that kind of environment setting to create these liturgies? I mean, can everything that works for an individual somehow be translated for a group? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, all of us can undertake individual liturgies, but in the end of the day, it will it will require the collective mm. for substantive change to happen, right? Mm -hmm. It will require our friend groups, our communities, our families, our churches, our workplaces to commit to actually creating and being an environment that allows and celebrates the sacred time and the sacred place, right? Because it is, I mean, you know, every young person knows it's the hardest thing to be the only one without the phone, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it would be really nice if there were just four or five other friends, right? That also didn't have the phone mm -hmm. when you're eight years old, mm -hmm. right? In elementary school. And so um, it's the same thing, right? Then it's like, how do we create the classroom or how do we create the workplace? How do we create the church community in which there is less expectation to be on the phone and actual celebration, right? To say, hey, let's let's take this time where we can set all that stuff aside, right? And be together. Um, and that I think in those different contexts could look really differently. Um, you know, a workplace and a church, you know, being a part of a church, obviously those are very different kinds of spaces. Um, but I think for those who have responsibility or capacity to design those spaces and times, right? To actually cultivate those times of belonging, um, it can, I think there are lots of different ways we can think about it. So, so very quickly, you know, um, in terms of church spaces, you know, I, to be very honest, I haven't yet gone to, I don't get around to lots of different churches. So I, I should say that as a caveat, but I haven't gone to many churches where in the program it says, Hey, you know, let's, let's let this be a tech free time. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, whereas I've gone to a synagogue where that was in the program, just hmm. written in. Right. Um, and I remember thinking in the synagogue, oh, that's fascinating, right? There's mm. this real sense of like, oh, this space, let's just respect this space and our time just for now, mm. right? Um, so it can be kind of a light touch, kind of like just recommendation. This is just how we do things. Um, 
uh, in the workplace, it can look like, you know, I love what some of the companies in Silicon Valley actually are doing for their employees. It can look like, hey, when you go on vacation, uh, we don't, you know, a direct, like, we don't want you to be checking your email. We need you to rest. And actually, anyone who writes you an email during your vacation, you can just delete it, right? That there's a company expectation, right? That that is so. So no one feels penalized. No one feels like they have to keep up. It's those kinds of very overt, intentional, explicit, you know, this is how we're going to do things, right? So that there isn't guessing. And that's part of the problem right now, I think, for us is that we don't have etiquette. We don't know what the expectations are, right? With each other, within our organization, you know, we don't have an Emily Post, right, telling us what the manners are, right? And so everything's just getting ratcheted up Mm -hmm. to what is possible technologically. And what is possible technologically is Mm 24-7, right? Which is not doesn't align with our human capacity, which is I need to sleep, <laughs> right? Um, I am an embodied person that that needs to get out, right? Um, there's a lot of things about our human health that does not align with the technological capacities. And that's where we're running into so many problems. Mm. Well, when, when we think of all these challenges, as we draw this conversation to a close, which has been so rich, when we think about these challenges and opportunities, what actually gives you hope for followers of Jesus? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that this is actually the time for the church, hmm. like this time, um, because the Christian heritage and theology actually is so filled with resources for people who are tired and exhausted and feel stuck with this life that our society is handing to us and our kids, right? Um, And whether it's, you know, a, a whole history of spiritual disciplines or contemplative traditions, right? Like there are aspects in which um, in some way, there is an aspect of this is not something new under the sun, <laughs> right? An aspect of it, um, because there have been other, um, as you know, aspects of society or culture that have also, um, striven to the kind of dominance that technology has over us. Um, so I think as the church. Um, to me, we have the resources of, of a theology that celebrates our embodiment, that celebrates our relationality, um, that celebrates um, presence and something bigger than ourselves. And I think when we actually start listening to the people around us or even in ourselves, that's what we long for, right? That is what we are so hungry for. Um, I think we just need to, as the church, do the work, right, of kind of pulling that 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 up um, and foregrounding it and, and trying to understand how it meets the needs of our time. Hmm. Our guest on today's conversation has been Felicia Wu Song. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, thank you, Felicia. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. 
Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.